So good to see you all this morning. It's a privilege to welcome two new believers into membership and to see them express that faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in baptism. If you have your Bibles or your electric devices, open up to Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3. I'm not very good at titles, but if you have notes, I think it says something like this, the good life is a godly life. Probably reverse that order, a godly life is a good life, as that's more logically consistent with the text, but I think maybe I could say it this way, if you're searching, if you're looking at how to establish good living, and and by that I don't mean like, like you're merely moralistic, what I mean by that is the outcome of your life is good. The scripture is abundantly clear that there is a way we should live. So when you look in Proverbs 3, I'm going to read verses 1 through 12 just to introduce you to the text. I think it flows together as a unit, but uh, both time and focus will will require us to be a little more narrow than that. So we're going to look at verses 5 through 12 particularly. Scripture is, uh, it's giving a call to a young man, and by extension, I think all believers, to follow after God, to trust the Lord. Can we turn the mic down just a hair? I'm getting ringing. So, so this call to follow after the Lord is not only just follow God no matter what. It's, it's given some texture and contour, and a lot of that has to do with the benefits of it. And as we follow God, not simply because of his benefits, but following God has benefits. And I think sometimes as Christians, we're a little unclear on how to describe or how to work through that That relationship of you should follow God because God is worth it. And on the flip side, God is good to those who follow him. And so sometimes we kind of scrub it out and it's like follow God because he's good to you. And it can just be reduced and synthesized into do what works out best for you. Well, that's contrary to scripture. On the other hand, you can almost reverse it and say follow God and if you do, your life might be miserable, you might be sucking on lemons every day, but, you know, in the end, we got heaven. It's like, well, that, that's actually not entirely consistent with Scripture either. So when we look in Proverbs, and again, I, I think it's helpful to understand a framework. I, I think oftentimes we struggle with the, like, the principle, promise type of tension. But if you see the book of Proverbs in this way, it's an extension of God's law. So go back to the book of Moses, where we see in like Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, a lot of prescriptions on how to live as an Israelite in the nation of Israel. And almost always, it's essentially like, obey and be faithful and love me with your whole heart, and there will be goodness, blessings. You know, we talk about the promised land. There's actually land blessings. It's not merely land blessings. Like, you go through the commandments, and you get to this one, children, obey your parents, and the Lord... And it will go well with you. And you'll live long in the land. Like that's a literal land. Like the land of promise. So when you go to the Old Testament law, there's prescriptions for how to live along with kind of the the general outcomes of those who live this way inside of the nation of Israel. Right? It's not as though like a godly man never suffered a, a, a fatal accident while dealing with dangerous implements or or going to war. But there's these general commitments that God has to protect and provide for his people in the law. So then we come to the book of Proverbs, and Solomon is working that out. 
right? He, so he is, he is knowing that there are both commands in the Old Testament law as well as promises and curses for those who generally pattern their lives this way. So now in the book of Proverbs, what he's saying is this is what the, this is what the law commands in real application. Like in some ways, you could say it this way. The book of Proverbs is worship's application. That is, this is how I live a life of worship in my work. This is how I worship God in raising my children. This is how I worship God as I speak to my coworkers. This is how I worship God in the marketplace of exchanging of things of value. This is how I worship God with my finances. This is how I worship God with, and just fill in the blank, the book of Proverbs is helping us know how to worship God. So, I mean, if I were just going to, like, help you think about that, I would suggest to you laziness is sin. Because the book of Proverbs condemns laziness and talks about laziness as the path of the wicked. The application of a wicked person to life is to be lazy. Laziness isn't just like an indifferent, not best choice. Laziness is actually a rejection of the purposes for which God has placed you on this earth. So when we look at the book of Proverbs, it helps us understand worship is about life and all of it, not merely Sunday morning when we sing songs. Worship is about how I relate to others. Worship is about how I interact with God and his world. And the book of Proverbs gives texture to that. It fills in the blanks that the law doesn't give us by being really particular. For instance, if you have an unjust exchange of goods, Because you're deceitful, God hates that. If you cause division among the people of God, God hates that. If you spread gossip, God hates that. Those are real applications going back to the Old Testament law of speaking honestly and caring about your neighbor and loving God supremely. Okay, so in that framework then, we're not merely just saying work hard, be diligent, have good ethics, treat your kids well. There's a God-centeredness to this. That is, you cannot raise your children in a way that pleases God while ignoring the God who made them and made you to relate to each other well. You must raise your children for the sake of God. So that's where Proverbs 3, especially the initial phases, you'll see the repetition of the framing of Lord. That's the covenant name of God. So verse 3, 1, we'll start reading. We'll read down through verse 12. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart heart to keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you'll find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. It seems to be something that the Gospels pick up of Jesus Christ, right? That he grew in favor with God and man. That Jesus Christ, even as a young boy, was growing in wisdom and its application so that men and God both looked upon Jesus as a pleasing person. Verse 5, trust in the Lord with all your hearts. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline, Or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves, as a father, the son in whom he delights. As you look at this text, especially focusing in verses 5 through 12, there's a call to center your life around the Lord. 
And there's multiple imperatives here. And the first imperative, the first command that jumps off the text at us is this. Trust in the Lord. Now, as New Testament believers, we might read that as like, set your saving faith in Christ alone. And while I don't think we should remove that from the broader context, look as we read in the text, it says, do not lean on your own. So trusting the Lord is opposed to a different type of trust. The, the, the word lean literally has the idea of someone who leans against something, that their weight and their life is resting on something other than what naturally it would be on their two feet. And so here's the picture. Lean on the Lord. Do not lean on your own understanding. Trust in the Lord's declaration of what is true and good and best. Do not Choose which way seems best to you, particularly when it's contrary to the Lord and his word. So as you look at that, there's a call to trust the Lord. And maybe if I'm framing this and kind of like thinking through the, the big picture of life, it's where do you get your direction from? When you're making a difficult decision, when you're working through the purchase of a car, taking of a job, going to college, when you're looking at these things, how do you decide what to do? When you're interacting with a challenging coworker and you're trying to just survive and not like strangle them or quit your job, how do you handle that conflict? When you have a coworker gossiping about you, how do you respond? Oftentimes we have our own assessment of how to live life. Scripture says, do not lean on your own understanding. And again, if we're understanding the first part and the second part is to be opposites, you have to do what you understand. The point is not to, to act in ways that are bizarre or weird or thoughtless. The point is, is what undergirds your reasoning is God's word, not your own assessment of what's best. Uh, let me give you the divorce analogy for you uh, in just a second here. So, like, if you talk to someone who's a believer who's getting a divorce, oftentimes the person who's initiating it, although a believer will say something like this, God just wants me to be happy. My marriage is a nonstop place of conflict, and I know that doesn't please God, so I just need to get space. Now, I hear in those sentences my own understanding. Right? Like, we have reasoned and rationalized why our path forward should be this way. Now, I'd suggest to you just, just to wrap up that illustration and not, like, pour salt in any wounds. God forgives, and often there are relatively innocent partners in divorces, and the church in the past has done a really bad job of welcoming and restoring people either who have sinned or relatively innocent. But it's especially on those decisions where life and pressure and pain press us towards a, a solution for which we feel like we can be satisfied and survive, we often choose wrong. Because, in fact, going back to verse 5, we don't trust in the Lord with all our heart. We trust in the Lord when it's easy to do so, when it makes sense to our minds, when we can see that the outcome will be satisfying, when we can recognize and understand how people will probably respond and it's good to us. The question of trusting the Lord is, do you trust when it doesn't make sense? Do you trust when it's hard and difficult? Do you trust when it's going to lead you to a place where you think it will be more painful to trust him? Do you trust the Lord when it's difficult? 
If the Lord is giving direction and you trust in the Lord with all your heart. Look at verse 6. And in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. So in all your ways and with all your heart, indicate that this is the whole life of the believer. Everything they do and with their whole heart, they are to be centered on the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, that second line, to know the Lord if you had to go to the end, of Chron- or the end of David's life in 1 Chronicles 28, David is challenging Solomon as David is kind of sunsetting his kingship and his life, and he's challenging Solomon to build the temple. And he says, I can't build it. God has told me that. He says, and you, Solomon, my son, know the Lord, the God of your father, and serve him with your whole heart and with a willing mind, for the Lord searches the hearts and understands every plan and thought. Let me read that to you again. And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart. You see that? Know. Same Hebrew word here for acknowledge. The idea is that you would know who God is and you would rightly submit to him as king. You would give him your full heart of loyalty. This is what it means to know God. So I I want you to picture ancient Israel. Like our city, probably everyone in ancient Israel would say they knew who God was. Are you a believer? Yes, they would say. I believe in God. I go to the temple. You look in Bakersfield and everyone says they're a Christian. Solomon is writing to a very similar broad audience as us. In other words, everyone in Bakersfield, in my opinion, Everyone in Bakersfield, generally speaking, seems to say, hey, I'm a Christian. So how does Solomon drive this point that there are a lot of people who say they're Christians, and then there are some people who actually are Christians? Like, there's a gap. I remember when my wife was working at a law firm, one of the guys was um, making some inappropriate comments, and, and one of the other guys was like, no, she won't do that. She's a real Christian. It's interesting, he, he, didn't, he, he didn't know what he was saying, but I think he said something really clearly. There are those of us who say they're Christians, and then there's real ones. Solomon is writing to a nation that believes in God. It's not as though when someone gets up and says, believe in, in the Lord, the God of Israel, someone's like, well, I've never heard that before, I'm an atheist. I, like, what is, what is your view of origins? They all said they believed in the God who made this world and rescued them out of Egypt. They all said that. But the striking difference, like for instance, in David's call to Solomon, is that the person who knows the Lord not only knows about him, but personally submits to him as king and loves him loyally with their whole life. Or you could say it this way, trust in the Lord with all your heart. In all your ways, acknowledge him. It's a a whole of life thing. You don't just love God at church. You love God with what you watch on TV. You love God by not being lazy and being a good parent in the evening when you're exhausted and bone tired. You love God by praying for your family. You love God in all your ways. When you make a decision about a job, you consider, will this please God? When you make a decision to date or to break up, it's, will this please God? Will I be a more godly person because of this girl I like, or will I be less godly by pursuing her? The questions about life are answered with this thought, what does God want of me now? And God cares about it all. 
in all your ways. Acknowledge him. Not only just point out that there, there's a promise given there. Trust in the Lord, acknowledge him, and he will do what? He will make your paths straight. Every, probably a handful of times a year, I'm reminded how good it is to be on paved roads. My father lives about two miles down a dirt road, and it's miserable. He lives out in the desert, so you have like those washboard ripples in the thing, and it feels like your whole car is going to rattle apart. You're wondering if you're leaving bolts and nuts behind as you drive down this road. I'm confident he's had to return a car because that road wrecked it. It's miserable. You can't go fast, and if you do, you know you will die. It's slow, it's hard on the car, and it's not enjoyable for the passenger. How good it is to be on sweet, smooth pavement. Now, that's the picture. Your life becomes smooth when you walk with the Lord. Look at what it says. It says he'll make our paths straight. And again, the idea is smooth. The road is not bumpy, it's not rocky, you're not climbing Everest. You have a smooth path ahead of you. And it starts with the Lord. So the first call here is to trust the Lord for direction, for what you do and why you do it. The second call is to fear the Lord. Look down with me in verse 7. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. So again, the call here is fear. That would be the imperative. Be not wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord, and turn from evil. Notice the contrast. To fear the Lord is placed on the opposite side of the scale as being wise in our own eyes. In other words, as we look at life, we assess what is right and good, and we choose what's best for us in our measurement, and we actually think we're pretty wise. When you are wise, you don't need to get second opinions. Or maybe this, when you are wise, you don't need an authority telling you what to do. Go back to the Garden of Eden. A sly serpent and false wisdom. She believed, she was deceived, and she thought she was making a wise assessment about fruit that was good to eat. It wasn't wise at all, was it? Scripture tells you your assessment of the world is inherently flawed. You should be skeptical of all things human in terms of opinion, most notably your own heart. The heart is deceitful. It's desperately wicked. The Bible indicates, so, so you go to Jeremiah 79, he says, who can know the heart? The point isn't you know your own heart. The point is only one person knows through and through what you are really like. It's the Lord. Yeah, so oftentimes we'll excuse behaviors like, well, I meant well. Really? Are you sure? God is the one who judges the heart. God is the one who knows what we're thinking and feeling and why. And I can tell you that oftentimes, even in something as sacred as worship, our hearts have motives that underline the why. And sometimes those motives aren't always godly. I mean, even when singing, sometimes I think about the people around me having to suffer. Right? Like, they got to hear me. And it's easy to get distracted by the people and be very horizontal in trying to seek affirmation or, or approval rather than trying to please and seek the Lord's favor. Again, verse 7, be not wise in your own eyes. 
If you trust in your own wisdom, your own assessment of the world, if you evaluate your own heart and find yourself approved, you are very foolish. The Bible says that they profess to be wise and in fact are fools. So instead, what we do is we fear the Lord and turn away from evil. I have quoted this before, but I'll quote it again. Um, Chambers says in his commentary, it is the affectionate reverence, speaking of the fear of the Lord, it is the affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. God's wrath is so bitter and his love so sweet that we have this earnest desire to please him and to fear him so that we will not sin against him. That's Charles Bridges. I think I said Chambers, it's Bridges. So when we look at the fear of the Lord, it's this movement to please God, to do what we do for the pleasure of God. You notice what we don't do it for, pragmatism. Well, I know that this will work out if I do this. We don't do it with this kind of blind, well, I think it will all work out in the end if I do it this way. Nor do we just do it because it pleases us. We do what we do as Christians because we truly are concerned that the Lord is pleased. That's why the New Testament again and again says something like this uh, in Ephesians 5, that we walk as children of the light and we try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Or in Colossians, where Scripture records Paul's prayer and he prays that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing to him, bearing fruit as they walk in every good work. To fear the Lord is to make God's pleasure your deepest commitments. Okay, so how do you live? I follow the Lord's directions. I trust in the Lord, not myself. I follow his ways. I don't go my own way, and I trust him to make my way smooth. Second, why do you do it? Because you fear the Lord. That the reason you do what you do is because you care so deeply about pleasing God that if someone were to ask you, why did you choose that? Why did you make that decision about career? Why did you decide to have so many kids? Why are you working that job? You're so much better than that. The answer should be, without sounding overly spiritual or braggy, because this is what pleases God. I mean, isn't it kind of weird in our culture you can't say that without feeling like you're saying, I'm a Christian. Like, like, like oh yeah, you Pharisee, I'm sorry I asked. But really, that should be the bedrock answer. Why did you do what you do? Why did you decide to do that? Why are you giving your money to them? Why are you helping that person? Because I care more about Jesus and pleasing him than my bank accounts. He will take care of me. He will support me. Look in verse 8. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. I think we need to be careful of a theology that says that we only get rewarded in heaven. When you look at Proverbs, sometimes the reward of righteousness is this life. So Proverbs would say that a righteous person is rewarded in this life, how much more in the life to come? It doesn't say, yeah, suck it up in this life because you got to wait. I think we need to be careful that we recognize that in the, in the prescriptions of God, these are not promising us in, in concrete language that every single one of us who lives righteously will live long days and be wealthy. Otherwise, the apostles would have some concerns about Scripture's integrity. But as general commitments, God is telling us, being a man of integrity, being a woman who's faithful, who loves God, 
leads us to smooth paths and physical goodness. Maybe some of the reasons our world is drowning in anxiety and sleeping pills is because a guilty conscience keeps us awake at night. We're just not righteous. Maybe because we don't trust the Lord through and through. That would not be all the answers. Some of you struggle with those things, and I do not mean to condemn you as untrusting of God. But if that is, that is a good portion of our society, where their, their path of wickedness and the fruits of it cause them to not have the peaceful rest of the righteous, then we shouldn't be afraid to encourage people who are struggling with anxiety and depression. Make sure you're living for God. Make sure you're pleasing him. Make sure you're pursuing after the Lord. I'm going to go a little more quickly in these uh, next points. If you look in verse 9, not only do we have the fear of the Lord as a commitment, we also honor honor the Lord by giving. Okay, so direction. I, I want to walk the path the Lord has laid out in his word. Why? Because I I fear the Lord. That means I want to please him because I am both concerned out of love that he be satisfied with my life and find joy in it, and I also do not want to find myself in his displeasure. That's what it means to fear the Lord. So what does that look like in in like everyday life stuff? And he gives two examples that I think are really valuable for us. The first one is this. I honor the Lord by my giving. Verse 9, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. To honor the Lord means to express value in him. So we honor the Lord with what? Our money. Why does he go after money? Because like in any culture, ancient Israel, money was the commodity with which you secured safety, excuse me, not financially, in terms of food, in terms of protection, Right? How do you know you're going to survive next winter? If you have lots of money in your pockets, you're going to survive fine. How do you know you're going to be able to navigate life well? You have lots of money. If you had lots of money, you could have multiple wives, you could have huge fields, you could have many servants. You were secure, you were satisfied, you were looked up to, you were honored in your society. To give your money to God jeopardized all of that. Right? Like, what do you do with money? Well, you buy food. You secure good fields, and you pay for servants to do the work of those fields. To give up money gives up status and security, to give up pleasure, to give up rest and relaxation when you feel like it, because you must work if you don't have money. You must save and scrabble and move to get money and survive. So when he goes after honoring the Lord with your wealth, he is challenging all of us to make sure that we recognize that if you have all the money in the world and don't have God, you are truly a beggar. And if you have money and don't give it to God, you're a poser. Right? Like You can't, with integrity, say, I fear the Lord, and I acknowledge him, and I'm walking in his way, and hold back from God the security money gives you or the power it gives you or the privilege and prestige it gives you, if you're not willing to open-handedly give that back to God, 
then God is calling your bluff. You don't love him and fear him with your whole heart. What would you say to any man who was beginning to date a girl and you found out he had two girlfriends on the side? Like, well, you don't have much confidence that this thing's going to last, do you? In fact, I would say he doesn't really care about the girls. He cares about himself. What do you say to a man who doesn't give? He doesn't care about the Lord. He cares about himself. Look how we are to honor the Lord with the first fruits of all your produce. He's speaking to an agricultural community. And he says the first parts of the harvest, the best parts of the harvest, the choice foods of the harvest are to be dedicated to the Lord. Unless you think Old Testament Israel only gave 10%, that's not true. Old Testament Israel would have given between 23 and 30% annually. Some suggest maybe even as much as 33%. Depends on how. The law's a little bit cloudy on how exactly they gave. They gave a significant portion of their money away and were required by law to do so, which is a little bit like taxes. Now, in the church, we are not required to give by law. No one's saying, hey, we want to see your pay stub when you join. Do uh, you have any hobby income? Uh, we have a couple forms. We just took these from the IRS, but we would like you to fill them out for us. No one does that here. Um, it is a little bit of a concern, though, that you know, perhaps God's people who say they love and fear God are, in fact, stingy with a generous all-sufficient Savior. I mean, the word grace is embedded with the word give. And if God's people don't look like God, we should challenge their faith in him. Verse 10, then your barns will be filled with plenty. What a paradox. How do you get money in this proverb? By giving it away to God. Right? Like, and it's not this like manipulative scheme where Solomon's saying, okay, so we want to really have a rich kingdom. So how are we going to do this? We're going to tell people if they give us more, that they'll get more. Like, that's like a sleazy pastor. Hey, what we're saying here is that honoring the Lord brings about his blessing. And, and the paradox is that as I give to God's work, as I give to God's people, and I give to the temple precinct, that the Old Testament Israelite was promised, God will care for you. God will take care of you. I can imagine as a parent, you know, a child wanting to go to Disneyland, and a parent saying, hey, you need to pay your way. So you pay $20 and we'll get to Disneyland. Now the parent's getting soaked in that deal. But then the kid's like, well, this is my 20 bucks. How do I know you're going to be good on your, your promise? It's kind of like, hey, hey, son, if you don't trust me and give me that 20 bucks, we're not going. And the child has no idea that Disneyland will cost like $2,000 in like three years. And dad's got to pay so much for this child to go. And God is saying, hey, I have given you all you have. Trust me to take care of you. So, do you trust the Lord? We honor the Lord. We show his value. We show our trust in him. We show our confidence that he's actually the one supporting our families. We show our hope that he will support us in the future because he's good, he's kind, by giving. 
God's people should be generous people. We shouldn't be grudgingly giving. God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a sacrificial giver. God loves a purposeful giver. All of these are New Testament principles, but they're Old Testament principles, which means this is always true of our God. He calls upon us to worship him, not just by singing, but by doing something that goes to the taproot of our soul and says, do you love God more than you love yourself? And if your wallet stays in your pocket, you're not loving God more than you love yourself. God's people are generous. In fact, Proverbs will later say, he who gives the poor lends to God. It's not just generosity of the church. God's people, every time they get poked, bleed grace by giving to others. Do you? Are you generous with your time, with your money? Do you love caring for others? Do you support and strengthen the church through your giving? Do you care about the missionaries and give them your time in prayer? Are you a giver? This particularly is dealing with wealth here, but I think the principle clearly is broader than that. Finally, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. Excuse me. I've told this in your notes. Honor the Lord by listening. It says, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Some of you have received repeated correction. Maybe you're like me in school and you couldn't spell. And every time you spelled the word receipt, you spelled it wrong. I remember one time the teacher lecturing us on the word witch. Everyone in our class was spelling W-H-I-C-H as W-I-T-C-H. She's like, how do you spell witch? And no one in the class knew. And again and again and again and again throughout the year, I can remember that teacher, Mrs. Bird, correcting the whole class. Have you ever been corrected dozens of times? And like when someone's like, hey, and you're like, oh. Like you just like physically droop because here it comes again. I did it again. I am such a loser. You ever feel like that? I want you to look at this text again. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. I, I assume that Solomon has a broad view of how God moves and corrects us. But God is so committed to moving you to being someone who shares in the joy of his holiness, that he's not going to quit on you. If your coach cares about your performance on the athletic field, he won't quit coaching you as long as you need it. If your teacher cares about you successfully mastering the material they're teaching, they, excuse me, they won't quit correcting you as long as you need it. They will keep patiently, lovingly helping you grow. What parents, after their child lies for the second time, it's like, you know what? I've already taught you about lying. I don't know why you don't get it. I'm done. If that was the case, we'd be filled with pathological liars in our Christian homes because every kid has this innate lawyer built in them. And they know. Like the Fifth Amendment is not something we thought up on our own. Every child knows it. I will not testify against myself. Did you do that? What the heck? What are you talking about? Did you spill that? Well, what is that? Why? Well, I, I don't even know if I've ever seen that. They haven't even lied yet. 
Like, they're just playing dumb, and then they finally pin him down. You're like, well, did you do that? Like, I, I think Jimmy had that Kool-Aid. Like, Jimmy's been at the neighbor's house all week. This is how children roll, and it's how adults roll. Can you imagine a parent, how unloving they would be if they only corrected their child a few times before quitting correcting? Well, this is the point. God loves you more than any human parent ever could if you're his child. He will not stop correcting. So don't stop listening. Don't stop responding righteously, repenting, and moving to righteousness. Don't stop hearing the voice of God in everyday life where God's circumstances, both good and bad, where God through his scripture or through the voice of a sweet believer in Christ challenges you. It says, stop it. Change. Turn back to Christ. You're not living by faith. I think one of the kindest ways God corrects us is through scripture and preaching. I have no idea what you got going on in your life. I mean, I did just talk about lying. Maybe when you're like, I'm kind of like that. And God just went, poke. And you're like, oh, that's a whole lot better than your boss firing you because you lie. I mean, God can get after you and reprove you and correct you in various ways. Reading your Bible on a quiet morning where the Lord just talks about maybe a kind answer turns away wrath reminds you that you've been really a jerk to your kids. What a gentle way for God to correct you rather than your 18-year-old leaving home and never coming back. Are you listening to the voice of God? He is moving at all times. Hebrews looks at the chastening and says, don't grow weary of God chastening you. God only chastens his son. And if you're getting chastened by God, it's because you're his child. I mean, when I'm in the grocery store, I want to spank other people's kids. I don't. They're not mine. And if God is not disciplining you, be terrified. He's not going to reach into someone else's house and spank their kid. If God is letting you run, you might need to check on whether or not you're actually in the household of God. But when the Christian is corrected, corralled, even chastened or punished by his kind heavenly father, he says, I'm so thankful I'm in his household. Hebrews says it's a signal that we are in fact God's children when he disciplines us. And so, not that we shouldn't pray that God relieves pressure on us, but sometimes we should listen before looking for escape. What is God trying to teach me in this hard time? How is God trying to shape me to be like Christ? What sins do I need to repent of? God, if there's any wicked way in me, help me to find it. Cleanse me from hidden faults. Right? Isn't that what Psalm 19 says? Lord, help me to walk in your paths of righteousness for the sake of your name, not for my own sake. If God is moving in all of this world's activities, if his hands of shepherding care are particularly for his people, then maybe we need to listen better, both to the word, to the preached word, to the spoken word by friends and other believers around us, and just in the life that is difficult at times. And that might be us. In our home, we call those God spankings. 
There are times, and, and just this is a made-up example, but you tell your kid not to run. They run, and they fall, and they get hurt. In our house, we'd be like, yeah, that's a God spanking. He got to you before we could. In your adult life, are you paying attention to God's spankings? Where God is saying, hey, the reason life right now is hard for you is because you haven't heard my word about being a hard worker and a saver. And now you're poor, and you shouldn't be. Are you paying attention? Are you listening? God loves you too much to be a passive parent. He loves you to goodness, to holiness, and to the happiness that that brings. Okay, so as you just kind of go through and survey what Solomon is telling us is the good life, the good life starts with a deep commitment to trust God, particularly in how God says to live, right? That we do that as we acknowledge he is king, and we give that acknowledgement through loyalty and love. That's the fear of the Lord. Then, we reject our own wisdom and we walk away from evil as we fear him. That leads us to honoring the Lord with our finances and honoring the Lord by listening as he teaches. This is the good life because it's the godly life. So if you want to pursue goodness, pursue godliness. If you want to have a life that will not cause you to stay awake at night with anxiety, walk with God and trust him. Know his word. Listen to his voice. Put him first as a priority and express that financially. Listen, this is one of the ways in which we get it wrong in this culture. Our church culture, and I'm talking broad church culture, says that we can bribe God by being good or by giving him good. That's not how this passage flows. This passage reverses that order. I come to God, give myself to him, and express my love for him by doing good for his pleasure and by giving him good. In other words, my behavior is a consequence of my love for God. Here, my behavior is a consequence of my love for myself. I want to get from God, and so I, I, I use the system to get what I want. Over here, I have God. He's what I want. And so I live for him and trust him to give whatever is good. Proverbs really clearly calls us to this view of life and says it's good. So come to God. We are not playing a game, manipulating God. That's this side over here. So let me call all of you to this simple thought. Do you trust God with all of your heart? If you do, then it will, it will leak out in a fear of the Lord, a knowledge of his word that will then lead us to being very generous people who listen to his voice in all of life. Is that who you are? It's the good life. I invite you, follow Christ with your whole heart. Give him all of who you are. It is good. And unlike this water, I would invite you to jump into a life where Christ is center because the water is good. It's so good. Do you trust Jesus with your whole heart? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Lord, I thank you for its correction, its encouragement, the way it strengthens us, the way it points us to hope in Christ. 
Father, I ask that you would strengthen those in this room to trust you with their whole heart. Father, it is so easy to trust in our own abilities, our hard work, our efforts, our jobs, our money, maybe just the financial security our family has. We don't worry about food on the table. These things we presume we are owed. Lord, help us to trust you with our whole heart, to acknowledge you in all of our ways. Father, you are so good to us. And so we know when the hand of chastening or correction and challenge comes from you, you're moving us to good things. We know this is an expression of your love. You call us to be like you, to be generous. You gave us your son. You have shown us an unmatched, infinite generosity. Please stir up within your people hearts that are eager to give, love sacrificing for the good and the glory of their precious king. Father, I ask that you would give us a clear-eyed view so that we would please you in all things. Lord, strip from us the hypocrisy by which we do Christian behaviors to please ourselves. Rather, Lord, help us to please you through and through because we love you and because we deeply honor you. Lord, finally, I ask that you would help us to trust you in all our ways, that we would know you and walk with you. For those that might not be the... Um, might not have put their faith in Christ. Father, I ask that even today, hearing those testimonies of people who've trusted in the righteous life of Jesus Christ, his death on behalf of sinners, and a resurrection as proof that he had paid it all, I ask that you'd help those here today who might not know Jesus Christ to trust in him, that they might begin this path of walking in the good life. In the name of Jesus Christ, for his glory we ask. Amen.